Lord, again, we bow when we come before you. We just want to humble ourselves and ask that the Holy Spirit can be present. Uh, we're going to talk, Lord, about some very important things and also sensitive things. So I pray that uh, the truth will be spoken in love with grace and uh, help us to understand ultimately what you want, Lord. Help us teach us how to worship you in a way that will not only please you, but Lord, we know ultimately the purpose of worship is to transform us. And so we ask that we can uh, have the fog clear today and see exactly what it is that uh, we can do to live lives of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Seventh-day Adventists are a unique people because in the very first word of the title of who we are, it denotes that we're a people that somehow seem to be focused on the fourth commandment. And um, if you think of charismatics, what do you think of? Speaking in tongues. It's sort of their pet doctrine. If you think of Baptists, well, it's in their name. You'll think of baptism by immersion, but, uh, or you might think of uh, predestination, you know, Calvinism, once saved, always saved. Uh, and you can go through a litany of different churches, and they all sort of have their special doctrines, and people think Seventh-day Adventists. It kind of bothers me sometimes. People, you're an SDA, SDA. You guys believe in multiple wives, and you don't take blood transfusions? Is that what you No, that's not us. That's LDS, not to be confused with LSD. And you got all these different, you know, church names, and... When I first joined the Adventist Church, I thought it was kind of unfortunate that uh, the good names were all taken. I mean, you, you wish that we could just be the Church of Christ, you know. And technically, we are witnesses for Jehovah. And we are Latter-day Saints. I mean, they all got great names. But uh, God gave us the name Seventh-day Adventist, and that used to sort of irk me. I'm just telling you, when I first came into the church, I thought, couldn't we be Church of God? No, that's taken too, you know what? Because it's the truth. Seventh-day Adventist? And as time has gone by, I realize that that's a name to be proud of. Because, think about this for a second. If you can picture this, maybe I'll draw on the board here and it'll help. I don't know if you can see this, but on planet Earth, there is a country that is called the Holy Land. What country is that? I just got a big circle here, okay, in case you can't see it. And in the Holy Land, there's a place that's called the Holy Mount. What's that mountain called? So here you got... Sinai. You got... Uh, no, the Holy Mount in Israel, in Israel is called Mount Zion. Or Mount Moriah. And so on Mount Moriah, you got a building. What's it called? Holy Temple. Holy Land, Holy Mount, Holy Temple. In the Holy Temple, you got a place called the Holy Place. Right? In the holy place, you've got the holy of holies. Most holy place. In there, you've got the holy ark. In the holy ark, you've got the holy law. Trust me, it's there. Well, let me just do it this way and add one more circle. You can think that way if you're dyslexic. 
And in the Holy Law, you've got one commandment where the word holy appears. In the middle of the law, the longest commandment, the only commandment that begins with the word remember, and the only commandment that has the word holy. What commandment is that? It's a Sabbath. So when you say you are a Seventh-day Adventist, what you're telling people is you're saying, we are a people that believe in worshiping a holy God. The very fact that God is telling us to keep a day holy, can an unholy people keep a day holy? In order for us to really keep the day holy, we must first be holy. Isn't that right? How can you rest and keep the day holy the way God wants if you're wicked? Is that pleasing to Him? So to really keep the day holy, it already is holy, we then conform our lives with a holy day. So we become holy. So just even in the very name, Seventh-day Adventist, it embraces the essence of worship by us believing in a holy day. Now, in the book of Daniel, you've got a couple of stories. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. They talk about laws that were made that required the people to choose between obeying the law of God and the law of man. Daniel 3 verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width was 6 cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. I want to pause real quick. Uh, Dr. Leslie Harding told me something once that... Um, I thought it was very valuable, that in the Hebrew mind, when they're giving the dimensions of something, if they give you the height and they give you the width, they don't give you the length, it would mean that the length and the width are the same. The depth and the width would be the same, rather. Meaning that if this was 60 cubits high and it was 6 cubits wide, if they did not give you another measurement, that means it would be 6 cubits deep. You notice like the altar of incense, it was, what is it, one and a half cubits high, one cubit by one cubit. And so that would mean that this image was 60 by 6 by 6. It stood up in the plain of Dura. Did that, that make sense, what I'm saying? This story here really ought to raise up images, ought to conjure up pictures for us of what happened or what will happen in the last days with another law to worship. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the princes and administrators, the governors and counselors, the treasurers and judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the princes and administrators, the governors and counselors, the treasurers and the judges, all the leading officials in the kingdom, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. <clears throat> and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O peoples and nations and languages. By the way, that sounds an awful lot like Revelation 13 where it says he compels all peoples, nations, languages to worship. That at the time you hear the sound, of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and psaltery, and the symphony with all kinds of music, you will fall down and worship the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Worship this image that is 60 by 60 by 60 by 6 by 6. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship will be cast immediately into the midst of a fiery furnace. You're going to go through fiery trials. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down, and they worshipped the golden image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Almost all of them. Now there were, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans that came forward, and they accused the Jews. And they spoke, and they said to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound, and it goes through all the different instruments again, should fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews. Now, when they say certain Jews, that doesn't mean all of them. It means some of them, which means the others had all compromised. That might have been there that day. Remember when Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Azariah and Mishael were all taken into the Babylonian school there. It says they were some of the young men that were taken. They weren't the only ones. Nebuchadnezzar carried away just a, a whole entourage of the sons of uh, the kings of Judah back to the palace. They were four that stood out. There are certain Jews that you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're Babylonian names, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, you can imagine that um, Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit disappointed because he, well, you know, in Daniel chapter 2, he has this image of the kingdoms of the world and Babylon's a head of gold, but it's soon displaced by silver and all the other metals. And he says, you know, if I can confound that prophecy, if the head of gold represented Babylon, what if I make an image like the one I saw in my dream, make it all gold? That will overturn the prophecy so that Babylon lasts forever. And somehow he had convinced himself this would work, and he was very excited about this. That is a big gold image. Uh, you know, I think stands like 90 feet tall, based on the 18-inch cubit. Gold. I mean, just think about what the cost of that would be. And he had it on the plane where it could be seen for miles and probably had it veiled with some tapestry or fabric. And just as the sun was coming up in the morning, he had everybody gathered. They came for this early unveiling, a time to worship. And the sunbeams hit the tapestry and the orchestra had practiced many times before and the conductor gave them the signal and the finest musicians in the civilized world were on the plane that day. A lot of talent was represented there. And they began to play. And uh, they pulled the little ripcord string and it released the, the tapestry and it fell slowly to the ground because it was so tall and unveiled this thing and the sun comes up at the precise moment and it's shimmering off this image in golden uh, iridescent hues and all the people are just struck with awe, the whole occasion of just suddenly the planes becoming light with the sun and this golden image and the music playing and the people shouting and everybody just was overwhelmed with a sense and a desire to worship. And they all fall down. And Nebuchadnezzar's beaming. He's, he's having this great inaugural of a new religion. Now I want to pause. He was a smart administrator. You see, when you can't weld the people together, you conquer a bunch of nations like Nebuchadnezzar did, 
and they got different customs and they speak different languages and they're from different backgrounds and they got different races and you may not be able to join them together politically. You might even struggle to join them together economically through a common currency. Uh, but one way that seems to always work to join people together is common religion. You know what makes this war that we're going on in the Middle East with Iraq and Afghanistan so troublesome, and even in Israel and Palestine, is because we're really not dealing with political issues. It's a deep-seated, long-lasting problem because they're religious issues. Nebuchadnezzar knew if we can establish common religion, I can weld this kingdom together so it will never come apart. Why do you think the Caesars said we're gods? They knew they weren't gods. They put on their smelly socks one at a time, just like everybody else. I mean, a man has to really be on a trip to think that he's a god. And, uh, but they knew that it would weld the people together. And that's what's going to happen in the last days. Satan is going to try to weld the nations together through common worship. You know, that's something that's happening now. Even though there's differences between Charismatics, Catholics, and Protestants, they're beginning to find more and more common ground through common worship styles. They're all, many of them, singing the same songs right now. Same kind of music, even if the words might be a little different. Trying to weld them all together. Uh, there's a great power in music. And... Uh, Three young men that were on the planes that day, you just really need to admire their courage. Because they could have said, when everybody bowed down, look, we don't want to get killed. Nebuchadnezzar's having a party. And it's just not very polite to be a party pooper. And, you know, he's gone to a lot of trouble and he's gone to a lot of expense to bring all these people together to inaugurate to his idol. And we may not worship his idol, but we ought to have the decency and the courtesy to at least check our sandals. When the music plays, let's just all adjust our sandals. And so let's get down so we don't make a spectacle out of ourselves and, and just, you know, then it'll be over with. But they would not even look like they were compromising. Now, you know, sometimes I visit churches on Sunday. And that's one thing now. And it's okay to tie your sandals but don't do it when everyone else is bowing to an image right in front of you. Because then you'll look like you're endorsing it. Someday there's going to be Sunday law. I won't be visiting church then. You know, I go sometime to see these different people at their churches and try and steal sheep or whatever I can do. But, uh, I admit, do you know that that's a, that's a special mission that we have at Seventh-day Adventists? Oh, let me, yeah, think about this. Who is the first audience the Seventh-day Adventist should try to reach? He said, go not in the way of the Gentiles. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So for Seventh-day Adventists, who is the first and most fertile field for us to work among? Are they the pagans and the Buddhists and the Muslims? Or are we to be working among Christians who haven't got the three angels' message yet? They already know about Jesus. They believe in the Bible, but they're mixed up on... They're still in the darkness of the, the Catholic influence. And we need to take the truth to them. This was the attitude of Joseph Bates and James White and Ellen White. They went to the other churches and they said, Hey, Babylon's fallen. Come out of her. 
And so we're apologetic these days. We say, well, as long as you have Jesus, let's just leave them alone. We'll go and we'll find the unsaved. Well, a lot of the unsaved are in these churches. <laughs> and some of them may know the Lord, but they don't know the truth. And we've got this attitude like, well, as long as they know the Lord, why do we want to create problems for them by telling them the Sabbath truth? Is the Sabbath a problem? Is it a burden or is it a blessing? And these people, you know, dear people, their concept of God is distorted. They think God is a sadist who's going to torment people for eternal ages. Don't be reluctant about going into these churches and sharing the truth with them. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was born out of people from Sunday churches who discovered the Bible truth again. And so, yeah, you'll be accused of being sheep stealer. They'll use all kinds of words to intimidate you for doing that. I remember one time. I was doing an, uh, an evangelistic meeting in a um, small town, and, and a number of people were coming from the other area churches, which typically happens, because, you know, you put out these handbills, and it says, uh, we're going to be talking about the beast and the mark of the beast and all these prophecies. And, of course, Christians want to understand these things. So all these Christians came from other churches in the community. And about halfway through the series, a bunch of pastors finally realized what was going on, that their members were coming, and they're coming back and asking their pastors all these questions the pastors can't answer. The pastors get upset, and they come to me, and I remember one pastor, he said, Pastor Bachelor, he said, you know, I really don't appreciate that you're stealing my sheep. And I said, Pastor Boylan, I said, they're not my sheep, and they're not your sheep, and the sheep go where the grass is. And he said, so, what would you think about it if I start studying the Bible with some of your members? I said, help yourself. And this is the truth. He got a hold of one of our, our new members, uh, still in the church today. I baptized her 20-something years ago, Char Lucasen. And he started studying with her, trying to get her to join the Presbyterian Church. And I, I ran into him at the post office, and I said, so, Pastor, I said, how's it going? Your studies with Char? And he said, I'm not getting anywhere. She knows her Bible too well. <laughs> he really said that. And I was shocked. So, you know, we do have a message to take to these people. Am I telling the truth? Yeah. yeah, you know, but our thinking, haven't you heard this stuff about, let's just go to the unsaved, let's not bother these people, they're in Christian churches, and let's just go. We've got a message to Babylon. Amen. And so when we're intimidated, even by some in our own churches, to be scared about going and giving the message to Babylon, which has fallen Christendom, it's confused Christendom. God has given us the truth. We've got to take it to them, help clear up the confusion. Where was I? Oh, back on the plain of Dura. So, the music place. You notice how, what a prominent role the music has before the people bow down. Notice what a prominent role, and Nebuchadnezzar, very smart, he says that the music will be synonymous with inspiring the people to false worship. And of course, there's a lot of visual grandeur. There's the important people there, just the whole, uh, the whole assembly, the whole spirit, the, the essence, the atmosphere of this whole gathering has the who's who of the kingdom. And how dare you have the audacity to stand up when the king has said, bow down, and everybody around you is feeling that power and authority that you've got to do what the king says. It takes uncommon courage to stand up during a time like that. My father, uh, a few years before he died, um, I think it was in 2000 actually, 
he made a donation to the Catholic Church because the Pope was planning this jubilee where he was going to fly around the world and visit a bunch of uh, his parishioners in different countries. So my father gave, I think, a couple million dollars, or he donated a couple million dollars worth of chartered jets to the Pope. And in exchange, he got to visit the Pope. And I remember my dad saying that when he went and saw the Pope, and here he is in the Vatican, and he's got the, you know, there's the people singing in the background, and all this glory and glitz and the, and the uh, beauty of it, and he, he's led up this line and all the regal situation, and the Pope is there. And my father was the most independent, outspoken, stubborn person in the world. And when he got to the Pope, he says, I was so overcome with the man and the power of the man. He said, I kissed his hand. I couldn't believe it. I was so disappointed. But you know, that happens to people. They just get so caught up in it that it's so easy to just do what everyone else does. Then on the other hand, some of you heard a couple of years ago, it was a big disappointment. Uh, I was interviewed by National Geographic. They were doing a series on the uh, prophecies, revelation. They wanted to know about the beast and the mark of the beast. And they had run into our stuff on the internet. So they came and they spent three days interviewing me. Two at Sacramento, then they flew me to Palm Springs, flew me in a helicopter from Palm Springs up to my cave and interviewed me there, which was great for me. I got a free trip up to the cave. <laughs> and they wanted to do human interest. I mean, they took hours and hours of footage and thousands of dollars. Then they flew to the Vatican and they interviewed their chief theologian there. Oh, I think it's like Cardinal Gibbons was his name. Not Gibbons. Well, I, oh, I can't remember his name right now. And um, they're in the Vatican and this, the producer was Jewish. And he had heard what we said about the Catholic Church and others being the beast. And here he is in the Vatican, and they've got Italian cameramen that are operating the cameras. And the guy's name is Robert Hepburn. He works for National Geographic. He's Jewish, and he just wanted to know the truth. And he had interviewed a bunch of charismatics, and he told me, he said, you know, Doug, what you're saying makes more sense than anything I've heard from a lot of these other churches. He said, it's, it's logical. So he is in the Vatican, and he asks this cardinal, who's like number three to the Pope, says, why do so many Protestants believe that the Pope is the beast and the Antichrist? And he said, oh, he said, you can even hear the Swiss guard around him gulp and gasp. <laughs> he said, the cameraman looked away, he said, I thought they were going to kill me. And he said, the Cardinal's face just blanched and then it turned red. And he said, you know, they couldn't believe I would have the audacity to ask that question in the Vatican. And I thought, Bless his heart. This guy had courage. He said, he just, you know, I want to know what the truth is. <laughs> so there are still some Jews out there that stand up. And I don't think they even answered his question. But you know what's interesting? He did hours and hours of interview in, there in the, in the Vatican. When the tape finally came out, they showed us, they told us, they said, you know, you've got about uh, five minutes of footage in it and we're doing, you know, the, they were going to open the program with me actually climbing up and they were going to use it as a, uh, a lead-in. Someone real high up in National Ge Geographic saw the tape. They got a call. Was, uh, we're piecing things together, but I've asked several questions. They got a call and they were told to edit out all of the material from the Cardinal and all of my material, except for, some of you saw it, 30 seconds. And it was just very interesting to me, but they got intimidated uh, by the power of it. And 
There's going to be a lot of that in the last days. question is, are you going to buckle? Now, I got away from my subject about music. So, <laughs> uh, music is very important for us because it is a form of prayer. Uh, let me say real quick, something has radically changed that we need to be aware of. Up until Thomas Edison... If you wanted to hear music, you either needed to know how to sing or whistle or play music. You had to make your own music or you needed to know somebody who knew how to make their own music. And people would go down to the porch of the country store or they'd get together once a week on someone's front porch and the folks who could either play a banjo or uh, had a fiddle or something like that, they would make their own music. And you know, once every few days people would get together, or maybe even in family worship, once briefly a day they'd make music. But with Thomas Edison learning how to record and reproduce music so you could listen to it whenever you want, wherever you are, and of course that primitive technology has become very sophisticated now, so a person can actually gorge on music all day long, right or wrong kind of music. This is the first time in the 6,000 years of man's history that we've had that ability. And music used to be sort of reserved for a time where people would get together culturally and they'd, they'd you know, just rejoice in folk music. Not all music has to be uh, music about singing Bible verses. I believe that there's um, support in the Bible that you can write a love song. That doesn't mean a love song does not need to be a sensual or sexually suggestive song. That's the difference between some of the love songs today. They're very provocative. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, and I could probably pull up a few, but I'm not going to, um, songs that just really talk about the beauty of love, or even romantic love, or you could write a song about nature. I mean, there's all kinds of music that is good music, that's innocent, that's harmless music, but there are principles of music that we need to understand because music affects us physically, it affects us emotionally. Music can elevate you. It can wake you up. It can put you to sleep. And I think uh, Danny was asking me a question earlier. A lot of people say, well, we worship God with one kind of music in some countries, and they worship God with a different kind of music in other countries, and, and they, their music is right for them, and our music is right for us, and it doesn't matter whatever country you're from. Well, there's some truth to that. It is true that there are um, some cultural differences in music in maybe the, the instruments, in some of the, the uh, way that they structure the music, but there are principles about appropriate worship music and inappropriate worship music that go across the board around the world that do not change. And so you cannot say biblically, well, music will not affect you this way once you go to this country. The physiological things that music does Sexually suggestive music is sexually suggestive music in every country I've been to. A lullaby. You know, if you're going to sing your baby to sleep, it doesn't matter if you're in Africa or in Scandinavia. You do not sing 76 trombones. <laughs> to, uh, I mean, and that might be a nice march song. And that, that's another thing. There's march music. Any of you remember the days when Adventists would get together Saturday night and do a march? Anyone remember that? I see a couple of hands. I know, we see where 
fewer and fewer hands go up when I ask those questions. I'm getting really old. <laughs> I, I thought that that was the strangest thing in the world when I joined the Adventist church and there in this little town, they said, we're going to get together and do a march. I said, where are you going? He says, well, we just march around. So you just march around? <laughs> so are you going to shout and bring down the gymnasium? Or what do you, I don't understand. He <laughs> says, yeah, we get together. And I thought this is the most hilarious thing I'd ever heard of. <laughs> so I went to watch these Adventists march. And they went to the gym. And they started, someone was playing this piano. And it was like this Sousa music. And they're all marching. And then there was one guy who was sort of the march master. And he would tell everybody, all right, boom, boom, boom. And he'd give some orders. And they'd start crossing paths like this. And they'd go back and forth. It was like an Adventist square dance, I guess. <laughs> I, I'd never seen anything like it before. None of you remember that. And this is in the church when it was really conservative. So they understood that, you know, there was, there's music. The, some of the songs that you read in the Bible, like if you go to Psalms 150 and it talks about praising the Lord with all these instruments and drums and tambourines and it says praise him in his sanctuary. Some people have said, see Doug, there's nothing wrong with praising the Lord with drums in the sanctuary. Wrong. They misunderstand that psalm. That psalm is a battle psalm. It's a victory psalm. It's talking about when they are coming back from victory in battle, we will praise the Lord who is in his sanctuary. They were not singing those songs in the sanctuary. And people have abused that psalm and others like it. You notice that, and is there anything wrong with the tambourine? It depends on how you use it and what the context is. When you cross the uh, Red Sea and your enemy is all swallowed up behind you, then it makes sense for Miriam to pull out her tambourine and to lead the women. You notice that the women are dancing with the women. It's not sexually suggestive dances. And they are rejoicing, and they are singing a, a song of victory. When David came back from battle, and he was victor. You remember, this is what made Saul so angry. The women came out, and they sang their praises. Saul has killed his thousands, they had their tambourines, and David is ten thousands. And Saul got mad because David got credit for more than he did. Tambourines, the women. When Jephthah came back from battle, his daughter came out to sing a, a song of victory. And so this was just the custom back then. They were, they were just songs of praise to God for giving victory to his soldiers. And it was a different kind of music than they would sing in the sanctuary. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. Now there are anthems. There's all kinds of music. And I, I should just also explain. Um, I know something about music in that I grew up with a mother who's a songwriter surrounded by this incredibly talented musician. But... What I know about music, I've absorbed vicariously. I can play about four or five instruments by ear, but it always hurts my ear at the end of the day to do that. No. But I cannot read a note of music uh, myself. So I'm not an expert on music. I don't pretend to be. And there's other people here that are much more qualified to talk about this than I am. But I'm just giving you layman's terms that you can understand. So you know, there are different kinds of songs. And across the board, the principles apply. Victory music around the world is going to be similar. Lullabies around the world are going to be similar. They're going to be soft. They're going to be gentle. They're going to have that, a different kind of rhythm. March music, it, it applies to the extremities of the body for like marching. The sexually suggestive music doesn't make you want to move your arms and legs. It makes you want to move your torso. You, you know what I'm saying? That's as far as that's going to go. And it's only because there are no cameras rolling right now. But do you see what I'm saying? There's a big difference in the music, in the rhythms, in the beat. 
and I've been around the world. I've been, I mean, I've been in India and Russia and Africa and China and all of the world. I've heard all kinds of music and I find that you can find all kinds of music, right and wrong, in their cultures. They understand the principles. And so the idea that you just, you know, you wave the culture flag and all of a sudden anything goes. No, no, no. There's, the principles apply everywhere. Um, and then we've got this other new dynamic that happens in the church. You remember when Elijah was on Mount Carmel? And uh, talking about worship, this is a great story to help illustrate that. He builds an altar. The people of Baal, prophets of Baal, built an altar. Both build altars. Same kind of altars. Well, maybe there's a difference. Elijah is probably built from uncut stone. Both have the same oxen on their altars. Both have the same wood on their altars. But there's a big difference in the way that they, uh, they worship. What do the prophets of Baal do? From morning to late in the afternoon, they pray. What was their prayer? Oh, Baal, hear us. And what was the rest of it? Oh, Baal, hear us. And the, what was the middle stanza? Oh, Baal, hear us. Wouldn't that get a little monotonous after a while? And they probably had the drums going, Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. And it was hypnotic. I, I probably, some of you heard me share my testimony that I used to visit different um, centers when I lived on the streets because the Christians would offer you a free meal if you went to their worship service. So I'd go to their worship service and they'd feed me at the missions, you know, on the street. And the Hare Krishnas had a mission in Santa Monica, and so they said, we'll give you a free meal if you come to our service. And so I said, yeah, sounds good. So I went with a friend to their service, and their service was composed of, they had a band, they had drums and a bass guitar, and the worship leaders were up on the platform. And they were playing their bass, and they were hitting their drums, and they're going, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And they started slow, and then it started getting a little faster, and then pretty soon they were all jumping up and down, and it went on for an hour and a half. And I was with a friend named Jay Samuels from Brooklyn. We were living on the streets. And I said, look, Jason, man, I can't do this. It's driving me crazy. I said, they're just hypnotizing everybody in here. I said, I'm going to the bathroom. So I slipped out, and I went to the bathroom. I just waited and waited for it to stop. And I came back in, and Jay was starting to get into it. <laughs> and all that jumping up and down, I never forgot what they said, because an hour and a half, it just burns it into your memory banks. And someday I'm going to lose my mind, and you're going to come visit me, and you're going to hear me going, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. <laughs> be the only thing I can still remember. <laughs> because it just, it, it's like self-hypnosis is what it is. But the music... And I used to see, I don't want to be critical, but just let's be honest with each other. The Hare Krishnas are wearing these, you know, these saffron robes and they shave their heads all except a little ponytail right back here. And they were going out in the airports. I thought, what in the world? And they give all their earthly wealth to the, the gurus and the leaders. And I'm thinking, what in the world would make them do that? I thought they're hypnotized. And I started seeing that in church. When it came, it's the same thing. And so all day long, they're going, oh, Baal, hear us, oh, Baal, hear us. And when that didn't work, they worked themselves up into a frenzy that got so rambunctious, they pulled out knives and began to engage in body piercing, which happens in churches too. 
until the blood gushed out. And uh, that's the epitome of rank pagan worship. And then you stack that up side by side, but what, what Elijah did, and you know Elijah said, well, maybe he doesn't hear you. Maybe you should call louder. <laughs> you know, I've often thought it amazed me that Jesus held crowds spellbound for hours. It says he sat down and taught the people. Jesus did not yell and scream and throw the scrolls around and put on a show and do back handsprings and <laughs> the things that people do to get attention. And especially, boy, it's tough for pastors to hold a crowd today because you folks, your minds are all so fevered from watching TV most of the time that ministers feel like we've got to compete with that just to keep you to coming to church. Amen? Amen? But Jesus didn't have to do that. What he said was so profound and relevant and powerful and spirit-filled, he could just speak it. And it got people's attention. It's like this uh, old Indian chief on the reservation that went to hear one of these charismatic preachers. And for, and I've seen this before, for an hour and a half the preacher walked up and down on the platform and he yelled and he screamed and he stomped his Bible and he tossed his Bible and he slammed his Bible and he never read out of his Bible. <laughs> And someone asked the chief, he said, what do you think of the service? He said, loud thunder, big wind, no rain. <laughs> and that's the way it is with a lot of these services. It's just a lot of noise. And we want that to be a substitute for just the power of God's word. I think if there is no music at all at a service, and you've got a potent Bible study, that's better than having 50 minutes of singing the same thing over and over again and having no message. The music is there to enhance the word. And music is really a form of prayer. You look at the Psalms, you've got 150 Psalms, what are they? They're prayers. It's, it's worshiping God through these prayers. And there was substance to them. You look at some of the Psalms, look at Psalm 119. Can you imagine memorizing the words to that? But that whole psalm is about the Word of God and the power and the holiness of the Word of God, the dependability of the Word of God and the law of God. And uh, they did memorize it. And there was music to it. But today, and, and the music may have been repetitious, but the words were all very different. But today what we have is, uh, I like to call them 7-Eleven songs. And you, you've heard about that before? Yeah. It's where you sing the same seven words 11 times. <laughs> and sometimes they're called praise songs. Now don't misunderstand. There are some praise songs. I like them. I, just, I usually discount them and I don't sing 11 times. Uh, and they're beautiful and they're good. But all right, let, me just, let me illustrate. How many of you have sometimes stopped at a 7-Eleven for something to eat? Come on, you don't, how many of you never raise your hand for any question? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. I do, sure, it's called a convenience store. How many of you buy your groceries every week at 7-Eleven? Do you usually get a real nutritious meal for your family at 7-Eleven? It's usually something you pop in a microwave and it's real expensive and it's salty and greasy and that's not where you, I mean, but you know, there's a time when you stop, I'm glad they're there. Well, that's how praise songs are. But real hymns are supposed to have some nutritional value to them. And what's happening now is the average church is doing their grocery shopping at 7-Eleven. 
you read through the hymnal and the theology. Matter of fact, I've read some hymns before where I stopped while we're singing in our church and I said, I'm not going to sing this one. I said, let's read it. And I'll just read the words. And you know what? There's a sermon in the verses. Those hymn writers back then, boy, I'll tell you, they had some powerful theology in their songs. And now we got these just, they're like love songs and we just swap out the name of their favorite boyfriend for Jesus. And it's like, yo, Jesus, I love you. You make my heart swoon. And, you know, and they're just so, it seems so frothy and syrupy and irrelevant. And it, ask me how I feel about this. <laughs> you know, and you're talking to somebody who came out of the world. I mean, I just, I knew what the music was and I was just totally in the world's music. But when I became a Christian, and I remember first time, First time I went to a Seventh-day Adventist church, having come from the world and having come from charismatic churches. And I went to this little church up in the hills that will remain nameless right now to protect the innocent. And it was, when I came in, it was like a sea of gray hair or bald. And just a lot of old people. There was you know, almost no young people in the church. And matter of fact, one of the first church members from that church died last week, 111 years old. She was like the 11th oldest person in North America. I used to be her pastor. And uh, I came in that church, all these old folks, and they'd sing these songs. And not, the ones who were on key had these raspy voices. And, uh, and then some of them were just not on key. And some of them weren't even close to the right key. And, and I can't always sing on key, but I got a good ear. I can hear, I can tune a guitar. I can hear when something's out of key. That's what drives me crazy is that when I sing, I can tell when I'm off key and I can't do anything about it. So, and you know what I'm talking about? You know, I got a good ear, but my vocal cords, I can't control it. <laughs> Except when I'm in a shower, but I can't prove that unless I invite you all to come in. <laughs> I can sing in the shower. So I'm in this church and they're singing songs and honest to goodness, I would, I'd look in the bulletin when it came time for the opening or closing hymn and I'd find out what the hymn was and I'd flip through the hymnal. If it had more than three verses, I'd go to the bathroom. <laughs> because it bothered me so much. I thought, oh man, they sing these songs and they're like funeral, funeral dirges. It just, uh, and they'd sing a song that was like marching to Zion. And they'd sing, we're marching to, oh man, we're never gonna get there at this speed. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? And they're trying to keep the piano player just is fighting to, to find the notes and she's going slow and so the song leader is, you know, and, and have you been, even been to that church before? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and it's plain old painful. And I just, I remember I, there was a real turning point one day. I went, to, I went to church and they were singing this song, I Will Sing of Jesus' Love. And for whatever reason, and maybe it was only three verses, and I said, I'll stay. I'll, I'll endure to the end. And so they started singing. And for the first time, I decided I'm going to think about what the words are saying instead of just finding out if the music's going to move me. You know, instead of worshiping God, we're wanting to know, is the music going to move me? What's in it for me? And so many of these charismatic services are, it's like, what did you get out of it? And what did it do for you? And instead of it being worshiping God, we got the compass needle swung around. It's all about, you know, what, what am I going to get out of it? What's it gonna, let's send out a survey through our community and find out what people want, and we will modify our church service to give them what they want. Let's market it so we can be a seeker-friendly church. And this whole idea of saying, what does God want? What is the truth? Let's do what God wants. If nobody comes, that's God's problem. 
Because we're going to worship him the way he tells us to worship him. But instead, we're doing, what the, we're doing what the church did during the dark ages when they said, you know, we'll get more pagans in the church if we just make a few compromises. Did the church grow? You bet it did. All of a sudden, everybody was part of the church. But what happened to the truth? The church grew through compromise at the expense of genuine worship and truth. Could that happen to us again? Oh, there's a lot of trends, a lot of books going out there about what you can do to survey your community and find out what they want. So I decided I'm going to stay in church and I'm going to sing this song. I will sing of Jesus' love, sing of him who first loved me. For he left the realms above and died on Calvary. And I started thinking about that and all of a sudden I got choked up. And I found out there I was, I don't cry, uh, not very often. And I started crying. I thought, man, Doug, you're so self-centered. You've been thinking about just, you know, how the music moves you and how good it sounds. And you're not looking at the words. And all of a sudden, I realized that the music is there really to bring the attention to the message. You've got 150 psalms in the Bible. Does anyone here know a single melody that went with any of those psalms? We don't know what David played. We know that we know there's a difference in music because when Saul would get all worked up with his demons, David would play and it would drive away the evil spirits. So music can have a very uplifting, it can be very healing, the right kind of music. Remember that story in the Bible? But the wrong music has the opposite effect. Does it stand to reason to you that if David could play a spirit-filled melody that would refresh the spirit of Saul and drive away the evil spirits that were tormenting him, can there also be music that will invite evil spirits? and drive the angels away. And yet, I run into people within the church, they say, music's neutral, it doesn't matter. Just it's your culture, it's your attitude, depends on what, how you've grown up, and everyone's got different tastes. Yeah, it does matter. There's music in heaven, and they've got the right kind of music, and there's music in hell, too. And uh, I think sometimes we're getting mixed up, which is which. Well, I want to get back to my story. Which story am I talking about here? <laughs> I think we're back in Daniel chapter 3. I, I ended up somehow with Elijah on Mount Carmel. <laughs> so he was enraged, Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, look, I'm going to give you another chance. Now if you're ready, I'm in verse 15, at the time you hear the sound of the horn and the flute, the lyre, the psalter, he says, that'll be your cue. And you bow down, good. But if you do not worship you will be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Oh, he's getting a little bit uh, arrogant there. A lot of audacity. Who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? He was about to find out. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, they had a lot of backbone. They answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you this matter. In other words, you know, we don't need to debate this with you. You don't even need to play the music again. If that is the case, our God who we serve is able to deliver us. Our God is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, will you serve him even if not? I know some people that have said, you know, Lord, if you'll heal this person or that person or me, then I'll serve you. And Jesus said to a man one time, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
But a real believer says, even if you don't, we're going to worship you and we're not going to worship the false gods. Amen. Worship him no matter what. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods. Why? Because it's one of the Ten Commandments. They couldn't do it. Nor will we worship the golden image that you set up. You know why this isn't a very important story? You've got an example here in Daniel 3. The government makes a law that you need to worship a certain way that conflicts with the law of God. Those men stood up for the Lord, for His law. He delivered them. And because they stood up, the message about their example spread through the whole kingdom. You get to Daniel chapter... And by the way, that was the second commandment dealing with idolatry. You get to Daniel chapter 6. The government makes a law that everybody's supposed to worship a certain way that conflicts with the first commandment. And Daniel will not compromise how he worships. He could have said, well, you know what? Jesus said, enter the closet and shut your door. I'm going to shut my windows and I'm not just for 30 days. He wouldn't even compromise. He said, everyone sees me go to my window and pray toward Jerusalem three times a day. They've seen it ever since I came to Babylon. I'm not going to stop now because of the king's law. So because he loved the Lord and he didn't want to dishonor God, he was willing to die rather than miss his time of devotions. And that's part of our worship. It's the personal time every day with Jesus. We call it morning worship. And so he opens his window and he gets on his knees and he prays where everyone can see him. And of course he goes to the lion's den. God works a miracle for him and he comes out alive. In Revelation 13, it talks about this other law that's going to be made. Well, you know, we saw that the first commandment was an issue in Daniel chapter 6 and the second commandment was an issue in Daniel chapter 3. You notice the first four commandments deal specifically with worship. What's going to be the commandment that the devil's going to use in the last days? It's going to be the fourth commandment. And there have been other times it's dealt with the name of God, too. I mean, transubstantiation and during the Reformation, a lot of people died because of the name of God. And so it's important for us to understand what true worship is. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not compromise. So the king was furious. Are we going to be persecuted when we worship the way that we're supposed to? The king was furious, and they were bound in their coats, their trousers, trousers their turbans, and other garments. They just began to wrap them up with ropes like spider webs. And they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. They didn't fall down near the edge. They fell down smack dab in the middle. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And my estimate is that there were six soldiers, two with each one. And they ran towards the mouth of the furnace. They, can you imagine being the second or third group of soldiers to throw one of those three Hebrew worthies in? You see the first two, they run up and they just get singed as they throw in Shadrach, they just fall down writhing and dying from the heat that has overcome them. And now it's your turn. And the king said, throw them down in the midst. You better get them all the way in. And you got to choose, am I going to die for Nebuchadnezzar to obey his commands? They were willing to die for their king. So they run up to the mouth. You know, I heard one time where Alexander the Great was getting ready to conquer a city. They had the city that shut up the walls, and he realized it was going to be a long siege. And Alexander got some of his soldiers, and they were up on a precipice within sight of the city. And he told a squad of his soldiers, well, first he told the people in the city, he said, you need to surrender. 
or we're going to destroy you. And they said, we're not going to surrender. And he said, all right, I want you to watch this. He told a squad of his soldiers, he said, I want you to march off that cliff. And they marched off the cliff and died. And Alexander said, you sure you don't want to surrender? He says, because these guys are all willing to die to get you. They said, we surrender. Because of the resolve of his soldiers. They were willing to die for their king. Are we willing to die for our king? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. And then, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, he looks off in the midst of the furnace, and the ropes are all burned, and he sees these apparitions of four beings walking around in the midst of this glowing furnace. He probably is shielding his eyes, and he says, I see there's four, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. If you go through fiery trials because you worship God and you're standing up for Him, do you go alone? You know, I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego read that verse in Isaiah where it says, if you go through the fire, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And Peter said, do not be amazed at the fiery trials that will try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you. We may go through fiery trials because we want to worship God the way he says, because we're willing to stand up for him, because we want to obey him. One of the highest forms of worship is Real surrender and obedience. You remember Saul said, oh, hey, Samuel, no problem. I'm going to worship you. That's why we kept all of these cattle from the Amalekites. We kept the best ones so we could offer sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to do a lot of worship. And what did Samuel say? To obey is better than sacrifice. So if people think that substituting bass music and drums is somehow going to be better worship than obedience, they're deluding themselves. The best way for us to worship God is by surrendering ourselves and being willing to obey Him, to obey His commandments. This is the example. People ask me, say, Pastor Doug, what do you think of Christian perfection? I said, well, I don't know. I said, all I know is I want to be perfect enough where I've got the relationship with the Lord that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel had, where I would rather die than knowingly disobey Him. I mean, wouldn't you be satisfied if you've got that relationship with the Lord? Well, you love Him so much, I'd rather die than miss my time of worship with God, to close my windows. That's the experience I think the Lord wants us to have, where we worship Him in spirit and in truth. How many of you would like to say today, Lord, by Your grace, that's the experience I want. Yes. Genuine worship, in a way that will please You and glorify You. Why don't we close this session then, let's kneel and pray and ask Him to help us. Father in heaven, uh, dear Lord, we are thankful again for the messages that you give us in your word that remind us of the time in which we live today. And we can hear the echoes coming from, from Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel reaching down to our day, inviting us to stand courageously for truth rather than bowing down around with the uh, world around us. Help us, dear Lord, to be consistent in our, in our faith. Uh, there are so many confusing voices that are creating background noise regarding how we are to truly worship you. Help us to get our information from your word and the examples we find there. And most of all, Lord, we pray that our lives can be totally and completely, without reservation, surrendered to your will. Uh, if we're resisting that, Lord, then we'd even pray you make us willing to do your will. 
and that through your love that you will melt away that resistance. Be with each person here. I know that there are issues in their lives that they are struggling with, and I pray that your spirit will just rain down upon them. Also, we pray for the outpouring of your spirit on this entire event this, uh, this weekend. As the Sabbath approaches, we just pray that we'll sense your spirit and angels walking among us, and that there can be a genuine revival of primitive godliness as you once delivered unto the saints. So be with us, Lord. Again, we thank you for your goodness. And may we worship you in a way now that will be a template for how we worship you through eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.